0: And uh, last time week we've been, well, last couple of weeks we've been looking at David's life and in time we're going to look at Abraham's life too. I think these two men, understanding their life and what they go through and all that, uh, and their relationship with God is, is absolutely crucial in, in you understanding the great book of Romans. And so we're going to be talking about that. And not only that, I think their lives by themselves stand as a great uh, lesson and a characterization of what we should be uh, as we study through David's life. You remember the first time we talked about David, I, I kind of took you to the end of his life, or, or the bad part of his life anyhow, when, uh, and I showed you his downfall. Uh, we called that David's fatal furlough, when he, uh, he got messed up with Bathsheba and, and uh, Uriah. And then I told you that if you want to study David's life, and I think that every Christian, uh, at some time in their walk with God, needs to really break down the life of David. And I think that uh, for me, when I did it, I kind of broke David down into the three aspects that really speaks about his life. And we've looked at two of those. We talked about his David as shepherd. And I showed you how that, in that particular study of his life, you see the foundational years of his life. You see the things that, when he's alone with God out there, uh, tending the sheep, that, that he builds into his life, that really pays off down the line in his life. And I told you if you remember that study that I don't know of anything more important in your life than when you first get saved or, or maybe when you first just really start to do what's right with the Bible or put the Bible in your life. I don't know of anything that's better than uh, and understanding how important those first months uh, first year of your life is where you really get stabilized in the Word of God. We have a number of programs here that, that help people with that and and lays the foundation in their lives of of working their way out of some situations maybe that they may find themselves in. Then we looked last week as David as king. And I showed you in that aspect of it, it shows you David as the victorious one. That's a picture of your life and my life the way it really should be. And I remember telling you, I told you a number of things, but I think the thing that I, I really wanted to stress last week is the fact that in all of my years in the ministry and dealing with people, uh, and understanding what I understand about the Bible and Christianity. I've never seen God's people more in a defeated state uh, than they are today. There's a lot of reasons for that, but God never designed it to be that way, and, and just the opposite. You know, if anybody ought to be victorious in their Christian lives, it ought to be God's people. And the very fact that God's people are a defeated people today uh, is a is a very sad thing, and uh, It's really the main issue in Christianity. But today we're going to study David as from the aspect of God's man. And those were the three aspects. David as shepherd, David as king, and David as a man after God's own heart. I think probably, you know, of all the messages that I preach, and I, you know, they're on different levels, you know. Some things deal with the uh, doctrinal side of things. Some things deal with the practical side of things. Some things deal with the historical side. Some things are issues that maybe we're facing or you're facing right now, but I I think of all the messages that I preached up to this point as our church, I don't think there'll be another message that, I know there hasn't been to this point, I don't know beyond this point, I don't know if there ever could be another message that really focuses on everything uh, that uh, that you really need to have in, in getting to that place in your life. And I, and, I, and I really believe, and, I, and I, I mean this with all of my heart, and I know we all struggle with things, we all have issues we struggle with in, in circumstances of life, but I, want, I really believe, for the most part, uh, most of you really want to be God's man or God's woman in your life. I really believe that. Amen. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, many times the struggle overwhelms us. We get into circumstances and situations that, that pull us down and really uh, hurt us and what God wants us to be. But... Honestly, and I really believe this, I believe that most of God's people today in our church here really want that. Now, whether you get that or not is another whole story. I mean, wanting it uh, you know, and getting it is two different things. I want a Corvette, but I don't think I'm going to get one. Keep waiting for Bev to feel God's tug on her heart to give me that linguini she's got over there. It's not a linguine, whatever it is. It's a linguine's pasta, isn't it? I don't know. That's my luck. I If I had three wishes, I'd, get, I'd ask for a linguine and I'd get it wrong and I'd get a bowl of pasta instead of the car I wanted, but that's my <laughs> luck. But anyway. But I want to talk to you as David is God's man. I know of no other man in the Old Testament that teaches, and this is the point I'm trying to get across, that teaches about my inner my inner intimacy with the Lord. You know, I can't obviously look into your heart and and nor should I. I mean, the Bible says that a lot of things that a man does or a woman does uh, by their actions it shows you their heart out of the abundance of the mouth, the mouth, the heart speaks, a lot of things people say. but at the end of the day, you know I know of no other man in the Bible that teaches me about what my inner intimacy should be and what we should what should be going on with me and God in my life behind the scenes in my daily walk, uh, and I look at david 's life and I see that better than any other man in the Bible. you remember I told you A couple of times throughout our series that there's really seven men in the Old Testament that really give you a kind of a composite of what we need to be Moses will show you how to have your servant's heart you got to have these in your Bible by now Abraham will show you how to walk by faith Job will show you about the sufferings of life and show you there's some things you're going to have to go through Daniel will show you how to overcome the flesh Noah he'll show you how to overcome the world Samuel he'll teach you how to minister but David teaches you about your relationship with the Word of God. Now, this is why that when you come through all the men in the, under the establishment of the nation of Israel, we call them the kings of Israel in 1st, 2nd, King, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, you're going to find that David was the standard by which God judges all the kings by. At the same time, within his life, he is one of the great examples today of, and this is the reason why we're focusing on it, as forgetting God's righteousness when we don't deserve it. Now, I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 4, and I want you to look down here now at verse 6, 7, and 8. This is where we're going to concentrate our study today, and and through this, I hope that the Lord will do in your life uh, what needs to be done, and, and in my life what needs to be done, but this is what He said. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, Father, we thank you today and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, I want to take this verse today and I want to to open up the life of David. And Lord, you're going to have to help me to do that. I believe that there's men and women here today that, that really want to have a relationship with you. And, Lord, uh, there comes a point where, you know, I can teach them everything about the Bible and lay out all the things in the Bible, and I can be there to help them walk them through their issues and problems and give them all the instruction in the world of what they should do. But, Lord, at the bottom line is they have to decide in their own heart that they want that kind of relationship, and then they've got to do what they've got to do. Help us to learn. Help us to learn today from David's life. We've studied him as the great shepherd. We've studied him as the great king. Now help us today to see what made him God's man. Help us to see the inside of David, the intimacy that he had with you, that that shows us what you look for, what you want to see in me, what you want to see in these, your people. And help us, Lord, to develop that attitude that David had and develop that relationship that he had that it can be said about us too, that uh, we were God's man and we had God's heart. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you today. In Jesus' name, for His sake we ask it. Amen. As I said just a moment ago, you'll remember our very first message that on David's life. We talked about at Second Samuel chapter eleven, David's fatal furlough, and I showed you there, uh, and we looked at that story. And there's a reason why I did it first. There's some things I wanted you to see and think about throughout the time, but we saw where David falls into sin, and we recorded in there, the Bible records that the two sins that he falls into are uh, adultery and murder. Adultery with Bathsheba and murder by killing her husband, Uriah. And, uh, and yet, when you, if, if, it, if it didn't draw your attention to it, uh, and if you did any reading about David's life at all, you'd know that those weren't the only two problems David had in his life. There's a whole list, a whole bucket load of sins that David struggled through in his life. But when it comes to studying his life, God shows two sins. To show us. Now, and there's a reason for that. And there lies, there lies the, the answer to uh, why David was one of the men chosen to show us uh, how we get God's unrighteous imputed unto us. Remember, 6, 7, and 8, what we just read, clearly David talking about uh, a man being blessed who God will not impute sin in his life. And he's obviously, you know, that's a reference to David. Now, the reason that those are the only two sins mentioned, and in fact, there were many sins, but God used these two to teach us imputed righteousness is simply this. Because there's no payment for those sins. There's nothing a man could do if he committed one or both of those sins. In this gave, gave its case both. There's nothing that he could do. Uh, You've got to see the picture of what's taking place. In the Old Testament uh, versus the New Testament... Uh, you're going to find in the Old Testament, uh, if a man went out and, and he, 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 did some, he did some sin, and, and the sins in the Old Testament are in two categories. They're what we call sins and we are what we call trespasses. Sin in the Bible in the Old Testament will always be against God. Trespasses will all be against man. And you'll find that the sacrifices are built around either sin against God or trespass against man. But when it, comes to, when it comes to these two sins that David committed, murder and adultery, there are no bulls and goats you can bring. Everything else, when you go through the study of the Old Testament, you'll find that there was a, there was a sacrifice that they could bring, whether it was a sin offering or a trespass offering. But when it comes to these two, there was no offering that could be. Nothing God would accept. The only thing that God would accept in this case, or these, one of these two cases, was death. And that's why the reason God focuses on these two sins, uh, and and many people get this messed up, the reason why God focuses on these two sins is not because these are the two worst sins you can commit. When it comes to God, you better learn something very quick. All sin is sin. Now, at the same time I say that, I add this to my little postscript. Some sins carry greater consequences than other sins. But he didn't, he didn't illuminate these two because of the fact that uh, he wanted to show you as one is worse than the other. He wanted to show you that under the Old Testament law, these two sins are punishable by death without any exception. And by doing that, he wanted to create the picture, and this is why David shows up in Romans, because David did not deserve to get God's righteousness, or I should say to keep God's righteousness. God should have taken it from him, but God didn't. And the picture comes into play uh, of, the, of what takes place in your life and my life. You know, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, I think there's six sacrifices that they can do. As I said, some are against the uh, uh, trespass against man, some are against sin against God. But when it comes to these two, there is no, there's no exception. There is no sacrifice. Now this in type is a picture of where you and I find ourselves Before we trusted Christ as our own personal Savior. And I want to go now. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to. You can if you want. Write it down or just listen to me. But this takes us back to the book of Romans, chapter 7, in verse 22. And this is where Paul now is talking about you and me. And what we see now is, or we begin to, the picture begins to emerge that what the two sins that David committed. Because there is no sacrifice for them. There's nothing that he could do. He he, he deserved to die. Nothing in the law that was written can save him from that. The only thing that saved him from that was God coming down and giving him his righteousness when he didn't deserve it. And in that picture, ladies and gentlemen, is what we find in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, when Paul says this. But I see another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This will be called in your Bible, the law of sin and death. This is what David's two sins represent. Because there was no sacrifice for them, because there was no, nothing he could do, nothing he could bring, it sets the stage for you and me. That before we were saved, we were under the law of sin and death. What does that mean? There was absolutely nothing we could do either. We had a death sentence on us. Not just because of, 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 and this is the great key. It wasn't because of just one particular sin. In our case too, all sin was sin. But we were under the law of sin and death. That because we were unsaved, because we could not bring anything that we had. No sacrifice could we make just like there was no sacrifice that David could make. There's no confession that we could make just like there was no confession that David could make. The law was against us. There was no church we could join that would fix our problem. Baptism wouldn't fix it. Doing good works wouldn't fix it. There was absolutely nothing we could do to get out from under the penalty of sin and death just like there was nothing David could do. And in both cases, God made a way to impute His righteousness to us just as He did to David when neither one of us deserved it. And that, my friend, is the example of David. That is the great picture of getting God's righteousness And when you see that, you understand that Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of our sin is death. Under the law of sin and death, what we do demands death. Nothing we can do. If Christ wouldn't have come down and died on the cross and give us that option that we might get His righteousness when we didn't deserve it, we're lost without hope, without Christ, without any way out, just as David found himself. But in both cases, David's and ours, God made a way. And God came down and He gave, he gave Him His free gift of, of, and gave Him His righteousness when it was free and undeserved, just like He did for you and me in the death of His Son on Calvary's cross. Now in your Bible, in your Bible, and you want to, what I'm about to give you now, you want to get in your Bible. In your Bible, what I just explained to you in the Old Testament under David is called the sure mercies of David. Now that's not just a Bob Alexander cliche. That is a term that is found in the Bible. And you want to put into your Bible and and get this next section down because it will help you out and you want to work it through and get it. This, what I'm about, what I've just talked to you about or what David got, which is in type a picture of what you and I got is why David is listed in Romans. That is the book that shows you and I as the church how we got God's imputed righteousness is called The Sure Mercies of David. Let's talk about that for a moment. In your Bible, there are three passages that will detail this out. And you want to mark these passages when we go through them here in just a minute. And uh, they are the major key today to understanding the concept of the sure mercies of David. And uh, uh, David is the most unique unique man in all the Bible. Now the standard teaching is today is this. And I just got to clear this up before we go on. The standard teaching is today, and it's a heresy, and it's taught by everybody, because nobody knows the Bible anymore. But the, the standard teaching is that all through the Bible, people are saved the same way. That back in the Old Testament, they just asked Christ to save them, even though Christ didn't, hadn't even come yet. And they were saved just like you and I are. And of course, we know that's not true. We know that there's a great contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we also know that when you, uh, when you look at it and you see it, that uh, it's a, it's a, it's, there's nothing really a comparable to that. In the Old Testament, there is no body of Christ. In the New Testament, after Christ's death, He established His body, which you were born into, through a spiritual new birth. There's no spiritual new birth in the Old Testament. You're born again. If you're here this morning and you're going to heaven, it's because you entered into a new birth through a contract agreement with Christ and His death on the cross, that you said, God, I can't save myself. Bring what you did on the cross into my life and be my payment for that sin. That's the only way you got saved. And when that happened, the Bible says that a spiritual revolution took place in your life. And your life was changed from that point on that you became a new creature in Christ Jesus by a spiritual birth. We call it born again after John chapter 3, verse 3, which is a very popular uh, phrase today that's thrown around. But that's what happened. There wasn't that in the Old Testament. There was no spiritual kingdom in the Old Testament. It was a literal kingdom. There's no indwelling Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament. He came and left. And and, uh, there's no salvation like ours in the Old Testament. A man had to do what God told him to do and obey what God told him to do. And it varies all down through the Bible. And on top of that... You know what we have? We have something that nobody else in the Bible ever had, and it's called eternal security. Now, eternal security, is, a, to me, is basic doctrine 101. To some people, it becomes, a, it becomes a major issue. I've never understood why some saved people get so excited about losing their salvation and going to hell. I've never understood it. I mean, once I got saved, brother, and I realized the fact that God redeemed me and washed away all my sins, if you think I'm going to go back and try to conjure it up, that there's a way I can, I'm going to figure out. I mean, I can't understand a guy and saying, well, I'm going to show you in the Bible a verse that says you can lose it. Do you ever stop and analyze that? You realize if it's true that you can lose your salvation, if it, if, conditional, if it is true. If it is possible for you to lose your salvation, I got some terrible news for you. You're going to lose it. Who in the world do you think you are? There's only one man in the world that could not lose it. The reason why he came and died is because you and I couldn't keep it. Do you realize the depth of blasphemy you say when a man gets up there and says, Well, you can lose your salvation, but I won't lose mine? Or I can keep mine, but you can lose yours unless you do this. Let me tell you something. There's only one man in the world that ever survived life on planet Earth who was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin, who never lost his salvation because he could not. And because I I was unsaved and he kept it for me, you know what he gave me? He gave me what he had. You know what he had? He had eternal security. Does anybody here not want to tell me that Jesus Christ didn't have eternal security? Well, if he had eternal security, where was that eternal security found? It was found in his righteousness. Amen? Amen. You know what I got when I got saved? I got his righteousness. I thought I got the whole enchilada. I got the whole Taco Bell in the parking lot with it when I got saved. I got it. I don't understand that. Excuse me. But that's not true in the Old Testament. It's true now. But let me give you the greatest verse in the Bible that I've ever found. I've got about four or five of them, but they're $20 a piece, and I'm just going to give you one today. Ezekiel chapter 18. Now let me show you David's condition. Let me show you what should have happened with David. Now this is the Old Testament. This is the difference between what I have and what he had. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness. Now, everybody follow that? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness. What's that mean? That means a man who did good suddenly doesn't do good anymore. Let's look what it says. And committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness, here it comes, all his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. There's a picture of a man who once did righteous and then he did iniquity and he dies in his sin because he never came back to God. But that's in the Old Testament. That's in the Old Testament. You know why a man doesn't believe you a man believes you can lose your salvation? It's because he doesn't understand, first of all, the Bible in the big picture. He doesn't understand the sure missions of David in a smaller picture. If you can explain to me the sure mercies of David this morning and you understand it in your own heart and you got it in your Bible and you know it, we've been through it a couple of times, there is no way you can come to the conclusion in the New Testament you can lose your salvation. You know why? Because David in the Old Testament could. He didn't have it like you and I had it. That verse told you right there, if you did righteous and then you turned and went to unrighteousness and you did iniquity, that you, you die in your sins. Your, your good works aren't even mentioned. That's David's condition. David did what was right, then he entered into iniquity, and he did what was wrong. Now, you know what God did? That's his state. He was was destined at that point to die in his sin. You know why? Because there was no sacrifice for those two things. You know what God did? This is what makes David so unique to you and me. This is why you want to study him. This is why you want to learn every aspect of his life. He represents as a shepherd, as a king, and after a man's gone to heart, everything that you and I want to be. You know what God did? God reached out in the Old Testament where there was no eternal security, where there was no indwelling Holy Spirit of God, where there was no church, long before the death of Christ, when the blood of bulls and goats could only temporarily cover sin, but couldn't pay for it, and God gave one man eternal security in the Old Testament. One man, one man. David's the only man in the Bible in the Old Testament who gets eternal security in the time when there is none. By all, by all, by all accounts, David should have died in his iniquity and in his sin. but God saw something. God saw in him something. That he didn't see in somebody else. And God reached down and when he didn't deserve it, when he violated the law, God made a disruption in his own law and said, I'm going to give him my righteousness in spite of what he did. When there was no penalty, no no sacrifice for it. You know what God did in your life, my life? He did the same thing. He disrupted the law of sin and death and he said, I'm going to give Bob Alexander my righteousness even when there's no way he should have it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, I want to show you these three passages on, 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 the, uh, on the sure mercies of David. There's three main ones in the Bible, or three in the Bible, that what we want. Now, look at Psalms, or I'll read them. You can turn to it if you want, or you can just write it down. Psalms 89 is the first place we want to go. And Psalms 89 is, is God talking about David. And in Psalms 89, we're going to come back to this in a little while. It's a key in the book of Psalms. But he says in verse 20 through 29, God speaking under the Holy Spirit of God says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, mine arms also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him and I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. Now, want to mark verse 24. Here we come. Here's our first key we're going to see. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. Now you want to mark these next two, 28, 29. Here it comes again. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Pick it back up in 30. And if his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, Then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now here's the next verse you want to mark. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Pick it back up in 34. My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. Now you see that thing? 24, 28, 29, 33. Now that is as close as you're going to get to a New Testament doctrine of eternal security anywhere in the Bible. And that's why so many people are drawn to Psalms. That's why when you and I get into a jam, Psalms is the first place we think about going. Because Psalms is where David got what nobody else could give him. Psalms is where David got God's righteousness imputed to him when he didn't deserve it. And you and I are drawn to that book, as most people are, when it comes to dealing with situations where we get into time. All right, let me show you another one, Isaiah chapter 55. Now these next two are talking about Israel. But ah, but remember, down here in verse 29, he said his seed. He wasn't not talking about just Solomon and the boys in his line physically. From the seed of David comes the line of Christ, the nation of Israel. It's talked about the throne of David is connected with Jerusalem in the millennium. So when he talks about David, and not only from a historical standpoint, now here's where you got to get it. And this is where the Bible gets down. Now we're going to get in the elevator and, and go down a couple levels. Not only is it talking about David, and you want to remember that the book of Psalms is, is David typified as three things. And maybe this will help you. The book of Psalms is David typified by three things. And the first thing David shows me is, from a historical perspective, David was a real man that got himself in a jam, and God came down and got him out based on an element that he had that God was looking for. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Doctrinally, David, in his trials that he goes through, is a picture of the nation of Israel, and God gives his... Sure mercies of David through his seed, so Israel winds up getting the same thing doctrinally. See, that went, those are the two verses we're going to look at here in just a second. Inspirationally, we also are David's seed, so it comes to us through that promise, and that's why you and I get eternal security when we get saved because it runs through the whole thing. So, Psalms is basically this Psalms is basically historically David going through the stuff time that he gets through and getting God's righteousness. Doctrinally, Israel going through the tough times and getting God's righteousness. Inspirationally, you and me going through our tough times getting God's righteousness. Keep that little format in your mind and you'll get a lot out of the book of Psalms. All right, look at Isaiah 55, 1 and 3. 1, 2, 3. Great passage. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and ye that have no money, come ye and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. I love that verse. I love that verse. I don't know why every church doesn't have that verse up on their their window someplace. I don't know why every church doesn't have that on a big sign somewhere in their their deal. We'd put it up here, but the beer parties on Saturday night probably wouldn't like it too much. (laughs) Things might change by the end of next week. You ought to see the pictures that I got that I'm going to hang up in a new church building if God willing we work that thing through. I got three banners that are going to be right behind, and I, I know you'd think about the one that that goes along the the thing there, you know, uh, and we're going to do that one too. But I got three banners that are going to be right behind me when I preach. And every time somebody hears me preach, they're going to see those three banners. And those three banners are three of the greatest banners that, I mean, they're like five by four. They're huge. And they're absolutely illustrate three of the greatest concepts that you're ever going to find about. And every person that sits there and, and watches me preach or listens to me preach, are going to have to look at me and then see those banners that's going to illustrate everything I say. You want to know what those three banners are? Nah, you got to wait and see. <laughs> but I tell you, oh, oh come on. You are, you're the kind of people who want to open up your presents before Christmas, don't you? Amen. Yeah. Well, you know what? Coal in a sack is the same early as it is late, isn't it, Terry? <laughs> but it's going to be great. But I love this. You know why I love this? It's because every church ought to have this up because it says, hey, are you thirsty? Come and drink. You don't have any money? Come and eat. And then it says you can buy when you don't have any money. How do you buy something when you don't have any money? I'll tell you how. Somebody else picks up the tab for you. Amen. <laughs> you can eat here free, you can drink here free. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry, you can come in those doors, sit down here, eat all you want, take all you want, eat all you take. You don't have to have any money to eat here. You know why? Because somebody else already picked up the tab for you. Oh, I love that verse. In fact, I'm going to throw the rest of my message away and just preach the rest of that one. Wherefore? Oh, I love this one, too. It only gets worse or better, (laughs) depending on where you're at. Wherefore do you spend money? For that which is not bread. Now, I wish that verse was out of the Bible. Walk through your house sometime and find all the money we spent on things that had nothing to do with the Word of God or God. No, I'm not faulting you. I said us. Us. But that's a powerful verse. I sure hope he forgets about that verse by the time the judgment seat of Christ rolls around. Where do you spend money for that which is not bread? Oh, another one that kills you. And your labor for that which satisfyeth not. Now there's, there's, there's life on planet earth right there in the 21st century and the 20th century. Spending things that, money on things that have nothing to do with God and then laboring for things that will never satisfy you. Boy, if that isn't the world we live in, that is the world we live in. Well, let's go on here. Incline your ear and come unto me, Here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, ah, here it comes, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. You know what he just told us? He tells that David was a witness to the people. Doctrinally, that verse is to the nation of Israel. Inspirationally, it's a picture, it's, it's to you and me. We're both God's people, one doctrinally, but one inspirationally. And David is a witness to me and to Israel of what God is going to do. All right, let's look at another one. Acts chapter 13, verse 34. And as concerning that he hath raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of david there's god making another reference to the nation of israel going all the way back through the seed which is israel and you're going to find that these three passages you're going to find that these three passages lay out in detail out for you what the sure mercies of david are that david in a situation that demanded death david in a situation under the law there was no sacrifice God imputed his righteousness to him and did not take it from him. He should have died in his sins, but he didn't because God gave him the sure mercies of David and that was God's promise to him and to his seed and you and I spiritually are in that seed. Now that's a picture of you and me and not God killing you and me and our our ungodliness and in, in both cases it's undeserved. Now let's now that we got that in mind let's move on to the next level. Now, let's see how and why David gets this sure mercy. Now, if you'd come through the Old Testament, and I already mentioned this, you'd see that there's, there's not much that matches up to the Old Testament and the New Testament. I listed all the things, that many of the things that are the contrast between what they had to do and what we have to do. How God deals with them versus how God deals with us. The fact that theirs is a literal kingdom, ours is a spiritual kingdom. In fact, they're in a, they're in a, they're in a nation, uh, their temple was a literal temple, our temple is a spiritual temple, our body, uh, totally, totally different. But it, there's one thing that is the same in both, and this is the key, really. And the thing that is the same in the vast contrast of things that are different is that in both cases, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God always deals with a man on the basis of his attitude of heart. That is the thing that never changes. When God looks at you and me, He doesn't see what everybody else sees. You see, you can clean this all up come to church. You can look prim and proper. You can be Alvis Carpus or or, or Machine Gun Kelly or or, or Dillinger inside this morning and look like, you know, Mother Teresa on the outside. It, It doesn't matter what you put on the outside when God deals with you. And this is what a lot of people don't like. God goes right down and deals with you in your heart. And that's where it starts. That's where it starts. And uh, that's the same wherever you go. You know, an old preacher told me this years ago. And I was, I was sitting around, and he was talking to some pastors. And I wasn't even in the ministry yet, but I, I wanted to find everything I could. So it, we, we had a Bible conference at our church, and during the day we had some kind of men's things where they just kind of, the pastors got to uh, talk to the old boys that were preaching the revival, you know. And, and I heard an old boy say this, and I think it was B.R. Lakin, if I remember right. And uh, he made a statement that I never forgot. And he said, you know what? And he was talking to the guy, the preachers. And he said, you know what? He said, you really want to know what the key is to having the right kind of relationship with God. And he was preaching on Psalms. He said, I'm going to tell you something, young man. He says, never get so hard and so cold and so indifferent toward God that God can't bring tears to your eyes with just squeezing your heart one time. And Boy, I heard that thing, man. And I thought to myself, that's one of the wisest things I've ever heard in my life. You know what scares me today about God's people? And I'll tell you what, we live in a day and age where I'm just, I'm, I'm flat overwhelmed sometimes of, of, what it, of, what it, uh, of what Christianity constitutes today. I have never seen a time when God's people, as I said earlier, were so defeated. I've never seen a time where God's people, there was such a lack of understanding biblical principles and concepts about the church, about the way you live, the way you do things. I have never seen a time in my life where God's people were so inept when it came to uh, the Word of God. It's just incredible. I have never seen a time in in the history of the church where where God's people just did not, in my mind, have a clue about the basic things of the Bible that just are the, the 101 things of life. What the church is supposed to be. What a pastor is supposed to be. How you're supposed to deal with basic issues. It just, it blows my mind. I mean, it's, it, I get, I just can't, sometimes I just have to, I, I just can't I grasp it. I grew up in a time when, when it meant something to go to church. I grew up in a time when it meant something, and, I, and, and part of me has been, my, and it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because it gave me a great perspective, but it's a bad thing because it just frustrates the fire out of me. I grew up in a time that that bridged the last of the old Philadelphian preachers with all this new modern crap we got in Christianity today. I saw the power of God work in great meetings. I saw men and women that the Bible really meant something in their life. I saw churches that had biblical standards, not some made-up rules that have nothing to do with the Bible. I saw people that wanted to give their life to God and, and really maintain a working, walking relationship with God. I saw people that took the time in their own Christian life to dot the I's and cross the T's. That it wasn't like, oh, it's Christianity, we're going to church, doesn't matter what we do, what we think, or whatever the case. We can just, you know, this is, this is God's place and God's Christianity and this we're all, it's not the way it was back then. There was a real difference. The Bible made a difference. People talk different. They look different. They, they didn't dare do the things that some of God's people do today and still claim to be Christians and go to church. And I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it scares me sometime today how God's people get so cold, how they get so hard, how they get so indifferent, that the first time something goes wrong, you know, they blame God and, and throw God under the bus and just go. There's no knowledge of what God is doing for them. God is, like a, God is like some other fix they have in their life. They grew up fixing their need with drugs or alcohol or booze or something else that satisfied them, and then they become a Christian, and to them God means no more than than it did when they got the fix of drugs or they took a swig of booze. It was just their immediate fix that wasn't going to solve any problem but just made them feel better at a time in their life. I, 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 it just blows my mind. It blows my mind. If I didn't, if honest to God, if I didn't have a church and I didn't have a calling from God, hey, I'd go be a hermit someplace in a mountain and just be me and God. It's absolutely asinine what goes on in God's people's lives today. And yet they think that just is just the way it's supposed to be. And they've lost or never had the perspective. And I see them so cold, so hard, so indifferent to God. And the key, the David, the thing that, the, the, the reason why and how the David got what he got is basically found in the book of Psalms. And I want you to turn over to the book of Psalms for a moment, and maybe you won't have time to do this today, but you need to get down about, I already gave you the sure mercies of David, but you're going to get two firecrackers here today. At some point, and maybe some of you will have this already, but you need to get down what I'm about to give you in Psalms, if you have any inkling of getting to where you need to be with God, and I'm not saying if you, you don't have to write it down today, you you, I'd suggest you just sit and listen to it and pick up the CD and, and break it down in time, but you have to do it, have to do it. You ever wonder why people are drawn to the book of Psalms? I said this earlier, Do you ever wonder why when people get into tough times or some tragedy falls in their life that they're always drawn to the book of Psalms? You realize that the book of Psalms, when you read it, it contains every emotion that you and I are ever going to experience? You know, the book of Psalms is a book that when you break it down, uh, it's, it, it's an incredible deal. And what I'm about to give you this morning, I've never really taught you before. It's been so personal to me. But I think that, you know, maybe it's time to, to uh, and I've followed this for many, 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 many years. My own wife doesn't even know all of this. And I think, that, I think that when you grit this today, you know, it'll be the determining factor in your life. You know, you realize that everybody comes to a crossroads in their life. You know that, Christians? Uh-huh. Oh, I'm say people do too. But you know there comes a point in your life when you come to church, any church, and you get that in your heart that you want to do what's right with God, and for a period of time you start doing it, and then you come to a crossroads. That crossroads is, are you going to move off the level that you're at and move up to the next level? That next level is going to maybe... You see, for a while you can get along, and and the emotion and the thrill of it all just kind of carries you along, but after a while, the daily, this is the reality of life. It's like eating at the same restaurant every day. How many times have you ate some place that the first time you ate it was the greatest meal you ever had in your life, and you say, I'm coming back here tomorrow, and you go back tomorrow, and it's really good, and then you go back, I'm going back the next day, and the next day you go back, it wasn't quite as good as it was the first time know what I'm talking about? Maybe I'm the only one that does that. But I'm telling you, uh, you you come to a crossroads in your life. And you have to decide, I'm going to go up the steps to the next level. But that necessitates that I'm going to have to focus on some things, change some things, deal with some things. And at that point is where the really, as the cliche is, where the rubber meets the road. That's where so many of God's people then, uh, when they don't want to fix what's wrong with themselves, they start focusing on what's wrong with everybody else. You ever notice that? And that indifference begins to come in. That joy that they had is gone. And pretty soon they're just going through the motions. Because the joy that motivated them, they came to a point and they said, in their own heart, not to me, they may come to church 25 years after they make that decision, but in their heart they decided a long time ago, I'm not going any farther. I'm done where I'm at. I don't really want to do that. And then the compounding effect begins to move into their life. And all the problems begin to come in. As far as I am concerned, the book of Psalms is the heart of the Bible. I think that if the Bible is is the body of Christ... And the Bible, and we we talk about how that that, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember that? Same as in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him. Nothing made was made, was made. And then it comes down and says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Remember that? Well, let me tell you something. If that book is the embodiment of God's body in a book. Now, I understand what I'm saying. You know, you can tear pages out of that book. You can't tear pages out of God. I, I know what I'm saying here. But if that book represents the embodiment of God of the Word made flesh, then Psalms, Psalms, Psalms is the heart of God. Now, God, if God is like you, God God, God has to have a soul. You know what the soul is of God? Psalms 119. Amen. Psalms is the book, man. Psalms is the book. You realize, and in, in, in the thing I want you to see here, and, and I never give you this before, did you ever notice how many people write Psalms? Seven men wrote Psalms. Seven. Another one of those seven things into your Bible. If you really want to understand all the elements, and as far as I'm concerned, the key to David's relationship with God and the key to David getting God's favor, and a heart after God's own heart, that God looked past what he did and dealt with him, paid the consequences, but gave him what he gave him was based on what David had in his relationship with God, which he got out of that book right there. You realize that that David writes 73 of the Psalms by name? You realize that 49 of the Psalms are anonymous? You realize then, coming through the book of Psalms, if you take the time to do it, Asaph, Solomon, Ethan, Moses, and the sons of Korah write the rest? You realize that the book of Psalms, which is the heart of God, which contains the of soul of God, is written around by seven different people? Within those seven people, you want to have a relationship with God? You want to have a working relationship with God? Start in the book of Psalms. Well, Bob, where do I start? Well, gee, I'd start with the seven men that wrote it. I'd find everything about those men that I could find out. I'd go in there and I'd do a search study on every one of them. And I'd find out what those men were, what they had, that God allowed them to be the part of the greatest book that makes up his body and his heart and then makes up his soul. Now, I'm going to walk you through them. Well, we've got to go. We'll do it next week. No, I'm going to walk you through it. These men, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, represent what your life and my life should be. I don't know how else to tell it. If you want to have the relationship with God that you need to have, if you want to get out of the mud pit you're in, if you want to fix the problems that you've got, if you want to get to the point where you really become a working, usable tool in God's tool belt, then I'm going to tell you, you got to get God's heart. If you want to be like David, a man after God's own heart, then you're going to have to get where David got to get what David got. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know what I'm talking about. Now, you know who the first one is? We're going to put these in a a working order. The first one is Asaph. You know what the book of Psalms means? The The word Psalm means praise. You realize the number one thing you need to have in your life with God that, that, that edifies all this and drives all of this. It's your praise toward God. Now I have, I've told you early, I have never been in a time in Christianity where I've ever seen it such a mess. I have never seen a time in Christianity where what people do have absolutely nothing to do with what God wants you to do. How many churches have you been in or how many places do you go? You see, we think that praise is music. That's what we think. We think, we got the idea today that you praise God through music. And therefore, music must be what we use to praise God. And of course, we take that and we build on that. And and truth of the matter is, the two great ingredients of your life, which is praise and worship, have absolutely nothing to do with music per se. You want a definition of praise in the Bible? It's not music. It's Psalms. The key to praise is And worship is found in Psalms. Anybody here want to raise their hand and give me the doctrinal inspirational and the the, uh, historical concept of of Psalms and the degree? (laughs) I know you could. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just saying, is anybody here but but nobody's supposed to be here? You know, play along with me. Okay, help me out with this. (laughs) Psalms is the key. Psalms is the key. You know who Asaph was? He was David's chief musician. He writes Psalms 78 through Psalms 83. He's a musician who's connected with praise. But he's more than just an entertainer or musician. The key to his music is the fact that he's a seer. He's a prophet who writes songs based on Bible doctrine. You see, we get the idea that the key to... because. And I know the Psalms were sung. I know that. So we think that the word Psalms and we think that praise of God lies in music. And we're wrong. Praise of God never lies in music. Praise for God lies in doctrine. It just so happens that the book of great doctrine, the book of Psalms, which we praise, was sung. And we know, you know, you get to the idea that uh, we're going to have a praise band in our church. And many churches have them. You realize that many churches you go to, uh, when they turn the lights down, the smoke comes out from underneath the deal, and you could be in a disco someplace and wouldn't know the difference. You know why there'll never be a praise band? You know why there'll never be a choir in this church? Never be. I don't care how big we get. There'll never be a choir behind me. You know why? Because the moment you take a select group of people who are going to really sing songs to God, the rest of you just cancel out. You know why there'll never be Bibles behind your pew? Now, if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. And if you look real smart, I'll give you a really good one. But you know, to go to some churches and you look back there, you know, there's the Bible We're back in the pew. And then if that doesn't work, they'll put it up on a big screen. You know what you, you know, the moment, the moment, the moment, the moment you give your human nature that kind of license, you know what you'll do? You'll quit bringing your Bible. It'll become too heavy, too cumbersome. It'll be something, where well, I don't need to bring it anymore because it's right there where I can see it. And so when you get a choir and they sing all the key songs, everybody says, well, I don't need to sing. I got the professionals up there. Hey, you're the choir. Amen. You're the choir. Well, any praise that comes out of God can't come from a select few. It has to come from everybody in your heart, not because we have some kind of system here. We don't need a praise band. We need people who praise God in their hearts by doctrine. Praise starts in your heart. Worship. Worship. I'm down the street. Come to the morning worship service. Worship God with your tithes and your offerings. The Bible says you'll worship God in spirit and truth. No truth, no worship. Wrong book, no worship. No truth in your preaching, no worship. No doctrine in your music, no praise. I've been in some churches and visited some churches, but, and here's the way it works. They have a praise band or, or praise singers, and they call them different. Sometimes we have a praise band they're over here, and they're good. Sometimes they have four or five praise singers, and they are to, they are to lead in praise. You know what it winds up becoming? Four people showing off in front of everybody else. Four people getting up there and pretending, oh, and singing with their eyes closed and their hands clasped and all this. Somebody else up there, tears running down their face. me tell you something real praise starts in your heart it has nothing about a platform nothing about a microphone nothing about what you do with music it starts in your heart the fact that they 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 song being praised and they sang the psalms doesn't mean that music is praise it's the doctrine in those books great hymns of the faith i you won't find you won't find probably 10 churches in this city metro area they use that anymore Unless they're just dumb and don't know what they got and somebody gave them to them. Like we did. <laughs> Nobody sings these anymore. How many times I hear somebody say, Well, are they, are they going to, you know, are they, are they, those old songs, you know. I just, I like the, and, and some people, and I told you day one, this church isn't for everybody. Some people come in, they don't like the music. They want us to dance around up here and have somebody up here. Or just, I think the word is contemporary. Let me tell you something. You know why this is called great hymns of the faith? Because you could just about take any hymn out of here and you could preach it. It drips with Bible doctrine. It drips with doctrine out of the Word of God. And and just for the wild sake of comparison, you know if they got the dates on these little songs up here, if you go through those and study them and lay them out and look at them, you'll find that every one of these is written between 1500 and shortly after 1900. The great praises of doctrine came when the great church age was preaching great doctrine. You know when that changed? Around 1900 when they dumped the book. You know what goes after the book? your music goes. Worldly Bible, worldly music. That's the way it is. And where once, where once great crowds of men and women, boy, sometimes I dream at night. And I dream, and sometimes I, 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 for one moment, I'd like to go back. I remember standing there as a young kid in Canton Baptist Temple. And I, got the, I played the trumpet, so I got to sit up in the thing with a, with a band. And it wasn't a praise band. We, we played the old songs out of that hymnal, that same hymnal. But I remember... And I, sometimes I, I, re, I remember and I just, it, it, it makes my heart sick and it, it gives me a pain in my heart because I remember standing up there watching a sea of 2,000 people and the great hymns and Bob Johnson, who was the music director, he'd cut off the instruments and he'd sing that thing, uh, you know, Acapulco, or, and he, he'd sing that thing without the instruments. And I'm, people would just raise the roof of the great song. He'd sing, When I survey the wondrous cross. They we would talk about waving the answer back to heaven. People would actually wave their Bibles. They just shake the screen now. Asaph, Asaph. First Chronicles fifteen nineteen. First Chronicles six thirty nine. David's chief musician. You got to wonder find out why he was. You got to look at the psalms that he writes. You got to see the songs he wrote. Then we have Solomon. He writes some of them. Solomon represents what you and I ought to have once we see praise through Asaph and worship through Asaph based on the Bible doctrine. Then we look at Solomon. Solomon represents for us the wisdom that we have, the knowledge that we have, and the understanding that we should have. You've heard me say many, many times that knowledge any unsaved man can have. Any, under, any unsaved man and woman can have wisdom. But understanding is something that only a Christian can have once he understands the principles. I read a couple of books in the last couple of weeks. Queen Victoria was the greatest queen that England ever had. She lived all the way up. Um, she was 64 years on the throne. And she, she was the queen during the end of the Philadelphian church age. She, she bridged the century, so to speak. And, uh, and during that time, England, uh, this is where she had, the, the saying was put out that, that the sun never set on the British soil. In India, in China, in the Solomon Islands. You ever wonder why the Solomon Islands are called the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific? Anybody want to raise your hand and tell me why? I'll, I'll let you do this one. Do you know this one? Oh, tell me why. No, well, I like that, but that's not true. But I could use that with dumb people that don't know what they're talking about. I like that. Write that down. No, that's not true. Why is it? Why are they called the Solomon Islands? Why? Anybody want to tell me? Tell me why. Anybody want to raise your hand? Just tell me. Anybody know? Anybody know? I'll tell you why. Because during the Philadelphia Church Age, they were colonized by the British who believed the Bible was the Word of God. Who knew that Solomon in the Bible represented the millennium reign of Christ when the world was going to be perfect and the weather was going to be perfect? And there was no more perfect climate in the South Seas Islands than in that chain down there called the Solomon Islands chain. And they named it after Solomon because they knew that when he came back and he was in his great wisdom and Solomon reigned was the type of the millennium, when Christ comes back, it was going to be just that perfect paradise. That's why. That's why. That's why. The Prince of India. While she's still on the throne. I read a book called Dreadnoughts. go goes along with the same period of time. At that time the British, the British Navy was the greatest Navy in the world. Their ships were all painted white. And they would go in a line. And they would go for 20, 30 miles in a line. And it was the most impressive thing that you ever saw in your life. I read a book one time called a Dreadnought. Dreadnought is another name for their battleship. And they, they said, what was, the, what was the key? What was the key? to to England's great great power and all of the sovereignty that she had around the world. And the man in the book, and it was a good book, he said it was their navy. Nowhere in the world was there a navy like this navy. The prince of India asked Queen Victoria when he visited and he saw the majesty of her kingdom and all of the majesty of the world of the British Empire, and he asked the queen, he says, what do you care? What do you claimed to be the success of your great nation? You think she pulled out the boat Greg Not? She reached over to a King James 611 authorized version and she says, Sir, this book right here. You get that in history, do you? Do you? The key to them wasn't their navy. Because you see, that's knowledge, that's wisdom. But understanding shows you that it was God's hand in their country and their world because of their belief in a book. I read another book last couple of weeks. Just came out. Was hyped as one of the greatest books to understand for us to understand how that the uh, how, why the world we way we are. And it was a great book. It was a deep book. It gave me a headache. But the name of the book was Woodrow Wilson: The Roots of Modern-Day Liberalism. Now let me tell you what this guy did. This guy, and it was a great book. This guy was a masterful writer. And he went back and showed the political agenda that started with Woodrow Wilson and then through FDR, Warren Harding, FDR, right up to where we're at today and almost with every turn showed you where this country made the wrong choice based on his flight plan back there and brought that thing to the place where every one of them was a socialist in their own mindset and wanted this for the country and this for the world and it fell into that thing. And today we have all the problems we have with our government, with our country, with our mindset, with our people. And he traced that thing back marvelously all the way back to Woodrow Wilson and wrote the book, Woodrow Wilson, The Roots of Modern Day Liberalism. And the the book was raved about Everybody said, you got to read it. So I said, i got to read it. When I read the book, see, the man had tremendous wisdom. He had great facts. He had great knowledge. But what he lacked was understanding. Woodrow Wilson didn't bring this country and set this country on the course because of some plan he had. He set this country in the course that he had because when the Balfour Declaration was passed, and he had a chance to stand up for the Jew in 1917, he reneged on it, and he went against the Jew. That's why this country is the way it is. And If you don't understand about the Belfar Declaration, man, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, uh, if you don't read about your own life and your own history, I can't help you. Solomon, he represents the discernment you should have. Solomon, he represents the the discretion you should have. He represents the wisdom of not just knowledge, not just wisdom, but understanding that things really are. Sing beyond what the appearance is. seeing beyond what is portrayed to you. Then we have Ethan. And Ethan's a great study. There's only one psalm written by him by name in the Bible, and it's Psalms 89. Ethan is the Ezraite over there in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31. Bible says in that passage that he's the wisest man under the, in the list under Solomon, Uh, he's the he's the next wisest man down it doesn't take it doesn't take if I want to look at these men in relationship to the book of Psalms and how it impacts my life and what it should do to me It doesn't take a lot it doesn't take a lot for me to see all I have to do is read here's one Psalm and realize that that Psalm not only is the great passage that deals with God's mercy sure mercies of David which I told you we'd come back to, and I told you, mark that, because Psalm 89 is important. But the context of Psalm 89 is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Ethan brings into the game for me, never lose my focus, never lose my perspective, never lose my passion and my urgency. Because you see, it's so easy to get caught up in this world. It's so easy to get caught up in all the ball games, all the wine coolers, all the beer, all the parties, all this, all that, all the, all the World Olympics, all the things that's going around. It's so easy to get caught up in all of that that you lose the focus of why God left you here after he saved you. We have a mandate. We're up against an agenda, and that agenda is he's coming, and time is running through the clock, and we've got a job we've got to do, and we can't lose our perspective, and we can't lose our focus. That's what Ethan does for me. Every time I read that psalm, it brings me back to the focal point, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The next one is Moses. Moses is an example for me in the book of Psalms of a practical, fun, of a functional relationship with God that most Christians never get to and never understand. Moses was God's friend. He spoke to God face to face. He shows the intimacy that we ought to have in a daily walk with God of communicating with God. He shows you and me what our prayer life should really be like. Not 15 minutes here, 15 minutes here, but a continual walk all day long, conversing with God as a man speaker to his friend face to face. Then the fifth one. These would be the sons of Koa. You'll find them in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 19. You know what their function was? The sons of Koa were keepers of the gate to the temple. What a tremendous thing that is. We see Asaph who represents for us and represents for you and me what praise and worship should be based on Bible doctrine. We see Solomon about discernment and discretion and getting understanding and understanding the things as they are. We see, we see Ethan as the focal point of the second coming of Christ, our passion. We see Moses as the friend of God in our daily day relationship. And then we come to the sons of Korah. He, they, were the, they were the boys. They were the boys that stood at the gate of the temple and made sure nothing come in the temple that was going to defile God. Hey, let me ask you a question. Who stands at your gate of your temple making sure nothing you take into your life, your mouth, your nose, your face, whatever, defiles God's temple? Who stands at your gate? Who stands at your gate? You know what the book of Psalms will do for you? It'll stand to watch at your gate. It'll do for you what the sons of Korah did for the literal temple back in 1 Chronicles 9. The principles of the Word of God will stand watch and let nothing come into your temple that will defile. That's what they did. You know what? When you go back and study that passage about the temple and the whole study of the temple, you'll find there were things they couldn't bring in. There were things that if you brought in, it defiled God. It defiled the sanctuary. It defiled the tabernacle. And those boys stood at the gate and checked the baggage and the luggage and the handbags and the purses and ran the wands over and made sure that nothing they brought in was going to defile God's holy temple. Who stands watch on your gate? The sixth one, David. He writes 73 psalms. But it's understanding the psalms that he writes that we see David's heart. And basically, psalms is three things from David's standpoint or a historical standpoint. It's David when he's right with God. It's David when he's out of fellowship and running from God. And then it's David when he's getting right with God and coming back to God. The whole psalm can be broken down that way. You know what it is? It's a picture for you and me. Putting these seven men around this thing. I'll tell you what it is. It's a picture of you and me when we're doing right with God. It's a picture of you and me when we're running with, from God, and it's a picture of you and me how to get right back with God. In other words, what worked for David will work for you and me. David committed two sins. No sacrifice for him. Only thing he could get is death. But David, God saw something in David. David saw. God saw David's heart based on the shepherd years and the king years that he gave him his righteousness when he didn't deserve it. You know what the greatest psalm is in the Bible if you ever need to get right with God? It's Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's great prayer when he got right with God. It breaks down, you might know it, the seven petitions. Let me read this for you and let me show you how this thing works into your own life through the life of David. Psalm 51 says, David speaking, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy lovingkindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin it is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desireth truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear a joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. When I will, then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall st- uh, sing aloud for thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall uh, show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in the burning of offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a, and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Uh, do good and the good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. And then, then shall they offer uh, bullocks upon thine altar. One of the greatest prayers ever in the Bible. If you ever come to the place that you need to get back with God, if you ever want to see why, how David got back and what God gave him, the sure mercies of David, and how it's a picture of you and me, everything in the Psalms, when you build these seven men around this book of Psalms, shows you every aspect and every element. You want to get right with God? There's no greater prayer right here. Shall we look at the seven partitions of this prayer? The seven things in this prayer you got to do if you really want to make it right with God and get it right with God. Look what he says, verse 3, verse 3 for i acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. You know the first thing you have to you know the first thing you have to realize it was your transgression. When i grew up back in the 80s there was a little comedian called Flip Wilson. He used to run around saying the devil made me do it. Devil don't make you do anything. I think the biggest and i see it all the time. See it all the time. I see it all the time, and it, it, it has to be the start of where you get right with God, because I see it all the time, where God's people have got sin in their life, they got problems in their life, and when they don't want to get right, you know what they do? They look for somebody else they can blame it on and justify themselves. That's the game. That's the game. I see parents do it. Let me tell you something, if you're a parent here this morning, one of the most damnable things you can do to your kids, for your kids, at your kids, around your kids, and before and fast and side and north and south and east and west of your kids is when they're wrong, try to find somebody else in the church that's doing wrong in their kids and then justify yours by theirs. You know what? Where it starts, you getting right with God It's your sin. It's your transgression. You can't sell it on me, on you, or somebody else. It's your deal. Deal with it. That's where it starts. And if you aren't willing to get to that point right there where you recognize David said, it's my transgression." It's not Uriah, it's not Bathsheba, it's not, she didn't make me do it, she didn't seduce me. Why, why, she comes up there every night because she knows I walk out on the porch, it was her fault. No, 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 no. It was my transgression. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Then look at verse 4. Here's the next thing you got to realize. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. Your sin's against God, not me, not your friend, not your wife, not your husband. It's against God. The consequences may roll down to other people, but your sin is against God. And let me tell you something. When you recognize it to get him, his standard is a lot higher. I wish my sin could be uh, against you or my sin, your sin could be against me because I'd cut you a lot more slack than God will. Because I'm a sinner too. I get as much to cut you some slack than you can cut me some slack. God doesn't cut anybody any slack. It's your transgression and it's against him and his holiness and his holy principles that you have transgressed. Deal with it. where it starts. Ah, verse 6, behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. You know what the first thing is once you start to put this thing in perspective? Get honest with yourself. Quit trying to blame somebody else for your problems. Quit trying to point somebody else out in the crowd and justify your lifestyle, what you want to do, the fact that you're out of fellowship with God by drawing attention to somebody else and getting the spotlight off yourself. Bottom line is this, my friend. God desires truth in the inward parts between you and Him. Look at the next one, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You know why? The great verse here is hyssop. I don't know if you remember it or not, but that's what you find over there in Exodus chapter twelve, verse twenty-two. Remember when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt? They were told to put the blood on the door. You know what kind of plant they were told to use? Hyssop. Hyssop's like kind of like a looks like a kind of sage brush. It's very dense and it it, it makes a perfect paintbrush. They weren't to use uh, anything but hyssop. Because in your Bible, hyssop represents something. In your Bible, hyssop represents, uh, a little bit later on in the nation of Israel, it represents, it was used in all the purifying things. All the acts of purification were used with hyssop. You're going to find that it's an aromic, It has a smell to it. And if you taste it, it's got a good taste to it. Hyssop represents the goodness of God and His salvation, and it's unmatching where you, where you get washed by the hyssop, by the blood. That's why God had it on the door to bring them out. That's why David said he understood that, and he said, Paint me, get me covered up with hyssop and thy blood. It's so a picture of you getting clean. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a new right spirit within me. You see, a clean heart and a right spirit. And now you see this in Christians all the time. And I've told you many, many times that your attitude of heart is the thing that you want to keep before God at all times. That is, the, that is the pinnacle of your life. Your heart being God's heart. When your heart is right with God's heart and you're in, a, and you're in agreement with Him, everything else in your life is right on the line. You notice He said... Create in me a clean heart and renew the spirit. You know your spirit, your spirit is your emotion, how you look at life, how you deal with it. It's dependent on what that is. It dependent on your heart, where it's at with him. I see some Christians, you know, and this is true, you can see it all the time if you just hang around long enough. You see some Christians, they get saved, they're on fire for God, they got the bubbliness, they're on fire, they're excited about the Word of God, and they do this and that, and they're excited, and they just want to learn, they want to grow, and then suddenly, someday, they come to church, and that Spirit's gone. It's now a defensive Spirit. It's now a spirit that doesn't have what it once had. And somebody says, what's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. The spirit goes when the heart goes. That simple. This is an ABC test. It isn't tough. Clean heart, right spirit. Bad heart, wrong spirit. And then look what happens then. Verse 12. You see, the heart and then the spirit. Look at verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You see, the first thing you do is your heart goes. The next thing you go, your attitude goes. And when that goes, then your joy goes. Now, once was a blessing and a fun thing to do. It's now a labor for it. I've seen this in churches. I've seen in churches where it starts out good, it goes good, and then you get a little group that, you know, it's like, Birds of a feather flock together, you know. You get a couple bad ad- apples over here with bad hearts. They start hanging together, and pretty soon you build, And I've seen it in many, many churches. You get everything else in your life is right on the line. You notice he said, create in me a clean heart and renew the spirit. You know, your spirit, your spirit is your emotion, how you look at life, how you deal with it. It's dependent on what that is, It dependent on your heart, where it's at with Him. I see some Christians, you know, and this is true. You can see it all the time if you just hang around long enough. You see some Christians, they get saved. They're on fire for God. They got the bubbliness. They're on fire. They're excited about the Word of God. And they do this and that. And they're excited. And they just want to learn. They want to grow. And then suddenly, someday, they come to church. And that Spirit's God. It's now a defensive Spirit. It's now a spirit that doesn't have what it once had. And somebody says, what's wrong? I'll tell you what's wrong. The spirit goes when the heart goes. That simple. This is an ABC test. It isn't tough. Clean heart, right spirit. Bad heart, wrong spirit. And then look what happens then. Verse 12. You see, the heart and then the spirit. Look at verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You see, the first thing you do is your heart goes. The next thing you go, your attitude goes. And when that goes, then your joy goes. Now, once was a blessing and a fun thing to do. It's now a labor for it. I've seen this in churches. I've seen in churches where it starts out good, it goes good, and then you get a little group that, you know, it's like... Birds of a feather flock together, you know. You get a couple bad apples over here with bad hearts. They start hanging again, and pretty soon you build. And I've seen it in many, many churches. You get a little elite class coming up in the thing, you know. Better than everybody else. Don't do what everybody else does. Go and do what they want to do. They get their little eliteness going for them. It all comes down to bad heart. It all comes down to bad spirit, and they lose their joy. They don't get the joy out of the same things they used to get joy out of. Now look, look, look at the next thing, the seventh one. Verse 16, wow. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in birth offerings. The sacrifices of God, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Here's the key, here's the bottom line. Here's what makes it work or doesn't make it work. This is where it becomes a sham or a show, right here. This is where it becomes a reality. This is where it really hits the world. This is where everything comes down to this thing right here. It's not what you do, but how honest you are on the inside. That David couldn't give the outside sacrifices because God didn't desire those sacrifices, verse 16. Either David said, I'd give it, but you don't desire burnt offering. No, no, why, David? I'll tell you why. The sacrifices of God are never what you do. The sacrifices of God are never what you bring. The sacrifices of God are in the inward parts, desiring truth, dealing with your transgression against God, truth in the inward parts, purging you with hyssop, getting a clean heart, getting in the clean spirit, getting the joy back, and then realizing the sacrifice of God, or a broken spirit, and a broken, and a contrite heart not sorry you got caught sorry you did it that's the key to david that's the key to david that great prayer is one of the greatest prayers anywhere in the bible And on the basis of a broken and contrite heart, David got the sure mercies of David. And if you ever and I ever have get in a place where we lose those things, and you know when you do, you want back, that's the only way back. Only way back. Only way back. Then there's one more. We haven't got to that one yet, have we? 49 of those Psalms are anonymous. Now see, here's what we got here. We got these things working down through here. We got... We got Asaph, we got Solomon, we got Ethan, we got Moses, we got the sons of Korah, and we got David. But then we got 49 are anonymous. Now if these things fit down here and show me the seven elements in Psalms that a man or a woman has to have, what would be the anonymous part of Psalms? Oh, I know what it would be. It'd be me and you. Be me and you. Our personal involvement with the seven components in the heart of God. What is Psalms, do you? What is Psalms, to you? You realize that when you, if you look at Psalms 119, uh, and I told you that's the heart of God, Psalms with the heart of God, uh, uh, Psalms of the of God, Psalm 119 is the, is the soul of God. What is Psalms to you? What is Psalms 119 to you? You realize, you realize that there's 10 words that describe the book of Psalms found in Psalms 119 to me? Ten basic little words that tell me what that book is, should be to me. It's no wonder that, you don't realize that Psalms 119 is one of the anonymous ones? The longest psalm in the Bible. You know, years and years and years ago, years ago, when I first got saved, I heard a man preach a message kind of like this. And he told me in that message that Psalms was the heartbeat of God and Psalms 119 was the soul of God. And he challenged everybody out there, and I was probably 19 years old at the time, He maybe 20, he challenged everybody out there that if you wanted to have David's heart and you wanted to be a man after God's own heart and you wanted to find God and the success of God and the favor of God, then that book of Psalms is where you did it. You know what I did? I started reading through Psalms 100, uh, Psalm 119, 176 verses. You know what I discovered? I discovered that every verse told me something different about the Word of God. You know what I did? Once I saw that, I still have it in, in my Bible. I still have it in my, every Bible I have. I, in Psalms 119, I, 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 I wrote, I, I outlined, I went through that and I thought to myself, I'm going to find me a prayer. If David found his prayer and his relationship with God in Psalms and David learned the word of God and, and Psalms is all about these things, I'm going to be the anonymous one and I'm going to find my own prayer in Psalms. And what I did, I was real spiritual back then because I knew that seven was a number of God, so I put, I had 14 petitions in this prayer, two times seven, trying to get all the help I could get. But I start out like this. I'd say, Lord, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all thy judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts, and I will have respect unto thy, unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with me, thy servant, that I may live and keep thy word. Open up thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of my law. In every day of my life, sometimes twice a day, You know what I'd do? I'd put a chair down in a room, and I'd sit over here, and I'd pretend God was sitting in that chair. And I'd read that to him, and I'd say, God, how can I stay clean? Help me. With my whole heart, I want to serve you. I took the prayer, and as David wrote, and turned it around and read it back to him and told him my petition. Mm -hmm. And every time, I would, for a while, when I would study the Bible, the last thing I would bow my head and say, I'd say, open up thou mine eyes, and I may behold wondrous things out of my law. You know what God did? He did. He opened up mine eyes. And whatever I know about the Bible today and whatever I don't know about the Bible today, but I stand on this. Whatever I do know about it, I know because in all my heart, I believe because God honored what I prayed for Him. I prayed for Him to teach me His Word. I came down there and it says, make me to understand the way of thy precepts, so I talk of thy wondrous works. You know why God gave me the boldness to preach wherever I go, whatever I do? As far as I believe in my heart, because God made me to understand His precepts. I would go down to the next petition that says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I will observe it with my whole heart. All through the book of Psalms, I defined my own prayer to bring me through to do in my life what God did in David's life. And I'm certainly not comparing myself to David in any way, shape, or form. I couldn't reach out, de- touch David's shoestrings. I, I, but I know where the answer is. I know where the bottom line is. I know what I had to do. You see, I'm the anonymous factor. I got six that the Bible tells me very clearly, but I gotta get involved. You you are the anonymous factor. If you've been saved 10, 15, 20 years, why don't you have you a prayer in Psalms? Why don't if you've understood what I'm saying, and maybe y'all didn't, that's fine with me. But what about from this point on? By next week, you ought to sit down with that thing, and I used to I used to read that thing to God two times a day, sometimes three times a day. Before, I certainly ever studied my Bible. But you see, the problem is, most of us don't give God any more than 15, 20 minutes in a Bible anyhow. it take you 15, 20 minutes to do that. We don't have that much time in our busy schedule. There's the problem. There's the problem. There's the problem. Giving God what's left over in our life. A child of God will be only as strong as his or her prayer life. And his or her prayer life will only be as strong as their understanding of the book of Psalms, becoming one of the seven ingredients in the Bible. You know what the book of Psalms is? You know, in the world, when a man talks to himself, we think he's nuts. And years ago, I heard a man say, and he made the analogy, and it was a good analogy. He said, you know what? He said, well, that's okay, because the book of Psalms is the man talking to himself. And that's how the world thinks you're nuts, because... Christianity is so far left from the world. But you know what? That is true. But the book of Psalms is more than a man just talking to himself. And here it comes. If you don't get anything else I said, get this. The book of Psalms is a man talking through himself. He's Talking through himself. He's just not talking to himself. He's talking through himself. He's, exp- he's looking at every aspect of his life and then working it through the Bible, talking through himself. Talking through himself. Psalms 119, 1 through 176 is all to build around a different aspect of what the Word of God will do for you, the molding of God's man into God's woman. You know what the real danger is? And I see this a lot in Christianity today. The real danger is, it's the God's people coming to the point where they, they, they I, I see some people when it comes to the Bible, it's like they put rubber gloves on because they don't want to get infected by it. They, they, they teach the Bible, they talk about the Bible, but it, it doesn't communicate down inside their heart. It doesn't transmit out. It, it's, it's, it becomes so judgmental, so self-righteous, you know. They can judge everybody else in the world, but they can't stop and judge themselves. They have a head knowledge, but it never penetrates down to the hearts. The Bible's just academics to them. No passion to it. No passion to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, when he talked, to, Jesus was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, you know what he said to them? They were just like that. He said, you know what? He says, you know what your guy's problem is? He says, you strain in a gnat, and you swallow the camel. You know what that means? It means that they get focused on a gnat. You know what a gnat is? A gnat's just a little bug about that big, you can't hardly see it. They get focused on a gnat and spend all their time dealing with a gnat, and there's a whole camel right over here they miss. I watch some of you do that with the Bible. Some of the time when you get into the Bible, everything you come up with, you got the gnat, but you miss the camel. The Bible has to be a living book. You have it has to be living in your life. It can't be sterile. It, you can't have the book and not become in the character and the person of Christ. You have to have the warmth. You have to have the caring. I'm not saying you don't have to have accountability and deal with things in accountability, but you lose the judgmental. You lose the attitude. You lose the fact that 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 everybody else has got problems and you don't. You realize that we're all in the same lifeboat and everybody should have an oar this morning. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. The only way you get to that point is to get that book in your heart that you see David. The key to David, the key to David is the same key to you and I. He got God's imputed righteousness when he didn't deliver, did deserve it, and you and I got it when we didn't deserve it. And the way to keep that attitude that you can be David like David, a man after God's own heart, is to go where David got what he got. Get into the book of Psalms and find you a prayer. Get into the book of Psalms and every day, twice a day, before you do anything, you commit that thing to God and ask God to give you this. I remember it so clearly. I still do it. But I remember sitting there, God, reading a passage and then stopping. Don't just blow through it and say, well, I'm done. Stop. Talk to him. Break down those passages as individual. Say to God, Lord, you said if I did this with your word uh, that, 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 that you give me this. Well, Lord, you help me do this and then give me this. He, my last one, my last one was down toward the end of the Psalms. It was one I ended with every night, and every time, and I never forgot it. And it's the thing in my heart because I go back to what the old preacher said. Don't ever get so cold, hard, and indifferent with God that God can't reach down and squeeze your heart one time and bring tears to your eyes. So the last thing I ever said when I said that prayer, the last verse, the last word, the last petition, my prayer was simply this. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because I keep not thy law. That's where it has to get to. That's where it's real. That's where it's personal. That's what separates the men from the boys. That's what makes the man of God the man of God. It isn't what you know or how many things you can quote about this in the Bible. It comes back to what your heart is and where you're at with God in that book. And, brother, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, If any man love God, the same is known to him. It shows if you love God, and it also shows if you don't every head bowed and every eye closed Lord we thank you tonight today